Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at just one verse, verse number 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4, and it says there, And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. You know, in the last few weeks, we've sought to answer the question, Who is the Christ of Christmas? Who is the Christ of Christmas? In the first part of that series, we saw that Christ is part of the divine trinity. He's the second person of the trinity of God. And we spent a whole morning discussing and working through that. Then in the second message, we saw that Jesus Christ is definitely deity. He is God. And we found many verses in in the scriptures that support that and confirm that, that Jesus Christ truly is God. Not just part of the Trinity, but he is God. And he is uh, the, the equal with the God of heaven. And this morning, I want us to look at his humanity. This is something that we don't often focus on very much, but there's some really good truths in here that can help us. You know, we, we ask ourselves that important question, what sort of a man God, God-man was Jesus? You know, what, what kind of a human was he? If he would have lived in our day, what would have his life been like? What was he, what kind of a person was he? An author named Stephen Farrar, in his book called King Me, What Every Son Wants and Needs from His Father, he describes the manhood of Christ. And I want to read a couple of paragraphs from his booklet. He says that Christ was a male, not a female. One doesn't compliment a man by saying that he is beautiful. The appropriate word in that context is handsome. Let's stop describing Jesus Christ in womanly terms. He is awesome, majestic, holy, righteous. He is the son of the living God. He is the God-man. Let's show him proper respect and use masculine, biblical terms to describe his greatness. And in the process, we won't be sending the wrong message about his person and character. On perhaps two occasions, the Lord Jesus walked into the temple with a whip and commenced to drive out the commodity traders that had had managed to extort office space uh, in the fa- at his father's house. And when he walked into the temple with the whip and started turning the tables over, they didn't say, look at his hair. I wonder who does his nails. Jesus raised, the, uh, raised by Joseph in the carpenter's shop, and he didn't buy his lumber at Home Depot. He cut down the trees and planed them with his, uh, planed his own boards. As a result, he had some serious forearms. And he didn't have soft hands. He had calluses and, uh, from doing the hard physical labor. That's why they ran when, they, when he uh, cleared out the temple. No one stood up to him. End of quote. There may be some other reasons why they didn't stand up to him, but that just looks from the human side of it, from the human perspective, Jesus Christ was a man of man's. And it troubles me to see the womanly pictures that we have of so-called Jesus. Folks, those are not pictures of Jesus. Those are pictures of some artist years ago that had contrived an idea of what Jesus looked like. 
That's not our Jesus. Our Jesus was a man's man. He was a, it was a strong and a uh, robust man. And this morning as we look at this, I want us to look into the Bible and ask ourselves some questions. What, what do we know about Christ? What's the Bible tell us about his human life? And there's quite a bit in the scriptures that I want us to see here this morning that can be of help to us. First of all, the Bible gives us clear statements that Christ became a man. We read there in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth a son made of a woman, made under the law. As we look at this, first of all, we see that this was not his origin. I know, we need to make sure, and I, I hope all of you understand that, but a lot of people don't. They think that Jesus Christ started when he was born. I mean, you started when you were born, and so did I. But that's not where Jesus Christ started. Well, I should say we started with conception, not when we're born, but the birth process. But Jesus didn't start at conception. He has always existed. He has always existed, and it's important for us to understand that. Uh, he, uh, we have already established that, that he existed eternally as God. We saw that last couple of weeks. Micah 5.2 uh, speaks of him as being eternal. Uh, we see in Hebrews 13.8 when he says that he, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, he has always been. He's an eternal God. And that God sent him to the earth and the fact that he sent his son. Now think about this. The very fact that God sent his son to this earth indicates that he existed before he came. I mean, you can't send someone that doesn't exist. All right? So Jesus Christ existed far in the eternity past. Now, Christ humbled himself and became a human. Turn with just a couple of chapters over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and look at verses 5 to 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. All right. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of a man, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Though he was God, in every respect, he emptied himself of his sovereign position and took on the fundamental nature of a humble servant. That's hard for us to really comprehend. God, who is the sovereign of the universe, humbled himself, set aside his sovereign position, and became a man like a servant. We see this even pictured in his birth. He was born in a barn. I I don't think any of us were born in a barn. But he was born in a lowly family. And he lived among lowly people. He could have been born in the palace. He could have been living, lived in luxury. But he chose not to do that so that he could reach out to those who were in desperate need. He resembled a human. We see there it says that he was in the likeness of man. He looked like every other man. No one that saw him saw him and said, Oh, wonder where he came from. He looks like an alien. They all looked at him like any other human. And that's why they would get so upset with him. 
That's why they attacked him so vehemently. When he claimed to be God, they said, who are you? You're just a man like us, and you think you're God. They looked at him, and they saw, yes, he's a human, just like we are. He resembled a human. His visible appearance was that of a human. Everything about him was human, as far as appearance goes. They could see that. But when he came to this earth, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, I think it was on Sunday night, that he took on him the form of a man as Adam in his innocent creation was. And Adam was created in the image of God. And Adam was given dominion over all that God created. That is amazing. If you haven't listened to that message that I preached on Sunday night two weeks ago, please take the time to do it. From Titus or Hebrews chapter two verse nine, that message has done more to transform my thinking spiritually than any other verse that I've read in a long, long, long time. There is so much in that, and how that Jesus Christ became the perfect man and lived among us as the perfect man, and he had dominion over everything. And you think about the things that he had dominion over. He didn't, you know, the, one of the biggest examples that I gave, and I'm not going to re-preach that message, but when he, when, he, when he rode into the temple on a donkey that had never been ridden before, that doesn't happen. If you ever get on an animal, no matter how friendly that animal might be, and you climb on their back, they're going to throw you to the ground. And he had complete dominion over that animal. It never gave him a trouble at all, even though the crowds around were cheering and screaming and hollering and and the, he, he had dominion over it. And so God created him the perfect man. And so here he is, comes to this earth as a human, in all appearances like a man. Scripture clearly tells us in First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was the God-man. We read also that those who knew Jesus knew he, that he was man through, <clears throat> though some of, the, the, some of them questioned that he was more than that. You know, they, they didn't want to think that he was more than a man, but they were happy to think that he was a man. And then later on in the first century, there's some, several of the apostles, uh, it, like in 1 John and some other places, they're attacking a, a false teaching that was coming along and said, yes, Jesus was God, but he wasn't man. And then when Jesus was on earth... People were saying, yes, he's man, but we don't believe he's God. But he was both. And so he says there in Mark chapter 6 and verse number 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and, uh, Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They recognized that he was a human. They said, we know his brothers. We know his sisters. He's a human. Who does he think he is? And so they were offended that he was claiming to be God. We know, note also from our text here that he was made of a woman or born of a woman. He had a physical birth. Mary was his human physical mother. He had a body. And he had a body that was no different than our bodies as far as the body goes. He had a human body. 
And by the way, when he resurrected from the dead, he resurrected from the dead with that human body. Now, it was an immortal body, but you know, some of the cults say that, no, he only rose from the dead as a spirit, and his body just kind of disintegrated and was gone. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Jesus went to his disciples, and remember when Thomas doubted, he says, Thomas, reach hither your finger and touch my hand. You feel me. He says, flesh and blood have, you know, you you can't touch flesh and blood, or flesh. He didn't have blood anymore, but he, he says, you can't touch flesh. I'm alive. I'm a real person. And so he had an immortal body. He was alive even after his resurrection. But Mary gave him that physical body. Now, what was the difference? You know, when we think of in the Old Testament, there were times when there was a theophany or a Christophany. You say, what's that? All right. A theophany is an appearance of God as a human form. And a Christophany is appearance of Christ in human form. And probably a lot of the theophanies in the Old Testament were actually Christophanies. Christ in human form. For example, when he came down and he walked and talked and sat and ate with Abraham. At first, Abraham thought he was a perfectly normal human. In the course of the conversation, Abraham began to realize this wasn't just a human. But he ate with him, he sat with him, he talked with him, he fellowshiped with him. He had a human body. He was just as much of a human as we are. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh. The Word speaking of Christ. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He wept. He had a human spirit. He died as a man. He was a human. But he was also God. We read over in 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 6 about how that he came, there was a, a witness of both the water and of the blood. Let me read that verse, 1 John 5 verse 6. Says, um, this is this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. There's a lot of ideas as to what that is referring to. I think that the most clear in the context of what he was trying to get across, he was trying to show Jesus Christ was both human and divine. And one of the, the two arguments, the two witnesses to prove that he was human was that he was born of water and died of, with blood. All right? You mothers who have given birth to a baby, you know that the first thing that happens is the water breaks. It's a water birth. And the, when Christ died, he shed his blood. The blood came out, it flowed out. Why? Because he was human. He was not just a spirit. He was not just a mystical being. He was human. He was born a human. He died as a human. And we see this all through his life. But we see back in our text, once again, it says that he, not only was he made of woman, but he was made under the law. 
In other words, he was born under the law. He was subjected, he had subjected himself to the laws of nature. Now here's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of all things. He didn't have to submit to any of the rules of nature. He can do what he wants because he made the rules of nature. But he submitted to them while he lived on this earth. And he submitted also himself to the Old Testament law as well. All the laws, Old Testament laws, he submitted to them. He was a Jew. He grew up in, in, in the Old Testament. You know, in, in our Bible, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus, and they're technically called in the New Testament, but in practicality, they're all Old Testament. They're Old Testament until the crucifixion and resurrection. Then it's New Testament. Remember, Christ said that uh, his, his blood when, uh, and there was the, the mark of the New Testament. Right? It wasn't until he died and shed his blood that the New Testament came into existence. So Christ lived under the laws of the Old Testament. He perfectly fulfilled all the law that the law required. He was the only human who's ever kept the entire law flawlessly. He lived under those laws. Every single thing that God had said under the law, Christ kept it perfectly and was the perfect human being because he was a sinless human being. But he was the God-man. So first of all, we see, we've seen here that there was clear statements that he was human. But secondly, I want us to see that the Bible gives us a brief history of Christ's childhood. It doesn't say a lot about his childhood, but it does give us some significant truths. First of all, his parents, Joseph was his stepfather, was a carpenter. We see that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, that Joseph was a carpenter. And having learned that trade from Joseph, Jesus became known as the carpenter. And his critics addressed him in such a manner in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. They said, is not this the carpenter? We know him. He's the carpenter in Nazareth. Who does he think he is preaching to us? Where did he get his training? He's just the carpenter. So they knew him. They knew his family. Mary, his human mother, gave him that humanity, as we've already seen. Joseph accepted Jesus as his own son, though he wasn't any blood relation to Joseph at all. But Joseph accepted him as his son. We see this when, uh, in, when Jesus was 12 years old, and Joseph and Mary took Jesus with them to Jerusalem to the Passover. And when they got to the Passover as he was 12 years old, he went into the temple and spent three days discussing the scriptures with the Jewish leaders. There's a 12-year-old boy. And Jesus' uh, parents, Joseph and Mary, they had already headed home thinking that Jesus was playing with his other friends. And after that night, they said, where's Jesus? Well, we don't know. We haven't seen him. And so they turned around and they looked for three days until they found him. And when they finally found him, Mary made this statement in Luke chapter 2 and verse 48. She said, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Dealt thus with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Thy father and I. Now she knew it wasn't his real father, but they had, Joseph accepted Jesus as his son. So this is his family. In his youth, what do we know of his youth? 
Jesus' use, Matthew summed up his, his use in basically one word. He was a Nazarene. Now, what does that mean? There's a big difference, and a lot of people get confused between a Nazarite and a Nazarene. A Nazarite was uh, vows that some people took in the Old Testament. Uh, Samson was a Nazarite. And one of the parts of that Nazarite vow was that they weren't to cut their hair, and that was a mark of shame, uh, so that he had long hair as a mark of shame, indicating that there's, he's, doing so, he's got a vow upon him, and that's why he's doing something that is shameful for a man to do. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. He was a man from Nazareth, a Nazarene. And so Matthew sums it. That's all Matthew tells us about his use. Um, but we see elsewhere that he's called, uh, he says that he was a resident of Nazareth as well. And that then Jesus grew up as a young man. Luke chapter 2 speaks, probably tells us more of his use than anywhere else. Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, we read, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He grew. He was strong. And God gave him health. Peter Pett, a commentator, shares this insight. He says, Every Jewish boy came, to, uh, came of age at 13, from which point he was looked upon as a responsible adult and expected to fulfill the religious responsibilities. Being, uh, becoming a son of the law. Thus, the rabbis recommended that boys were, uh, who were approaching that age be brought to the feasts so that they could become acquainted with the atmosphere that was uh, there at the feasts. Now, that was what was taking place when Jesus was 12. He was prepared. And you know, that's another whole interesting study. Look at some of the things that Jesus did at 12 years old. And they ought to be goals for parents to say, when my children reach, by the time they reach 12 years old, I should be able to expect this, 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 and this out of them. There's a lot of that. You study into that passage. There's a lot that Jesus did and desired to do at 12 years old. And we could say, yes, but he was God. And what do you expect? God would be able yeah, that there's truth to that, but at the same time, this shows us that 12-year-olds can be a lot more responsible than we expect them today to, today to be. Uh, and so, Jesus was a God-fearing young man. Jesus subjected himself to his earthly parents. Luke chapter 2 and verse 51 says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and subjected himself unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. This was after they found him in the temple. He'd been discussing doctrinal issues in the temple with the leaders. And they, 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 when they found him, he went back home with them. And then the end of Luke chapter 2, verse 52, says uh, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He increased in all of these qualities. So this is a little bit that we know about his childhood. But you know, the Bible also gives us important facts about his perfection. Very important for us to understand this. He lived a sinless life. He was tempted to the extreme. 
If you look closely at the temptation of Christ recorded in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, you will see that Satan tempted Jesus for 40 days nonstop. And Satan himself tempted him. You know, sometimes we yield to temptation. We are tempted to say, well, the devil made me do it. Well, it's debatable whether the devil's, you know, going to pick on me individually or whether it's one of his demons. All right? He's got a lot of demons out there, too, that are helping him. But the devil was the one who was actually working on Christ. And the scriptures tell us that he tempted him for those 40 days and Christ never yielded, never budged. And at the end of that, what happened? The devil left him because he gave up. That is amazing. You think about that. He poured all of his strength into tempting Jesus. That is why I believe that we can read over in the in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15 regarding his temptation and it says for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin he endured all kinds of temptation and to the nth degree none of us have had to go through that Oh yes, we were tempted regularly. But not to that degree. And Christ endured that because He was the sinless Son of God and the perfect man. He lived in that human body that was innocent like that of Adam and Eve before they sinned. And as I've pondered over this whole, this, all this month of all these things that I'm learning, one of the things that stands out in my mind is that what was life like for Adam and Eve before they fell? It was amazing. They lost so much when they fell into sin. They had full dominion over all of nature. They controlled things. I mean, as I pondered that, I thought, you know, if you get a, a, a puppy, you have no dominion over that puppy. Oh, you can, you can train it. And the scriptures tell us, James tells us, you can train all sorts of animals of every kind. You can train them, but you do not have dominion over them. Dominion, when Jesus rode that donkey into that city, he didn't carry a little whip here and keep poking it or whipping it and saying, come on, donkey, do what I'm telling you. That donkey did exactly what he wanted because he had full dominion over that donkey. When Jesus caused the fish to, to flood into Peter's net, Jesus didn't get down there with a stick and start splashing the water and trying to urge the fish. He just spoke the word and those fish did exactly what he wanted. He had full dominion over nature. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve's lives would have been like? And as I was pondering that even this morning, I was thinking, it appears, and I could be wrong on this, I'm still pondering this, it appears that Adam had dominion over his wife as well. And she gladly submitted to his leadership because he was the perfect example for her. 
But once they fell, God said that now Adam would rule over her. Why? Because there was no longer that submissive dominion. And I don't know, I'm still pondering on that. But the life of Adam and Eve would have been amazing, but Christ had a perfect human life. He lived the perfect example before us. And his sinless life qualified him as the perfect Lamb of God. During the first Passover, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 5, God said that they were to have a perfect sacrifice. We read in Exodus 12 and verse 5, For your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out of the sheep or out of the goats. So that sacrifice was to be a first year old lamb or kid. And it was to be without blemish. They were to take that lamb and set it aside for three days and look at it and examine it and make sure there was no blemish on it of any sort. It was to be perfect. That was the lamb that was chosen. When Jesus came to this earth, he became the perfect lamb of God. And thus John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he spoke to the crowd that was around him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The perfect one. That lived a human life that was absolutely perfect. He had full dominion over all nature. He never abused that dominion. He never did anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. He lived a perfect life. And he came for a purpose of dying in our place as our substitute. That's amazing. Though Christ was 100% God, he lowered himself to become a perfect man. And he resisted Satan's greatest temptations and remained the perfect Lamb of God. Satan, if he could have just got him to fall for one temptation, the perfect Lamb of God would have been blemished. But he didn't yield. Then he died as our substitute to rescue us from eternal hell. Jesus Christ had to be God in order to be able to pay the debt of our eternal debt. Because if Jesus Christ was only a man, or if he was an angel, or if he was a good person, or if he was a a, a inferior God of some sort, like the cults would say, but not eternal, he could not have paid the eternal debt for us. We have an eternal debt. It would take us for all eternity And every person who dies without Christ will spend a Christless eternity, never, ever ending of torment because they rejected the Messiah, the Lamb of God. That is tragic. 
And it ought to burden our hearts to reach out to people that need Christ. So many times we, we pacify ourselves by thinking, but they were a nice person and they're so good and so kind. Maybe God will have mercy on them. That's not the way it works. God said, if they don't receive my payment, the only payment that is acceptable, the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, if they reject that, there is no other sacrifice for their sins. They will pay for their sins eternally separated from God. And thus we need to be burdened for our families. And if you've got family members that are not saved, you need to be praying for them earnestly and begging God, please, God, open their hearts. Help them to see the truth. Give me an opportunity to speak for you. Help me to be the kind of a testimony before them that they need. Because this is an eternal destiny that they're facing. And Jesus Christ came and lived that perfect life that He might die in our place. This is the Christ of Christmas. Next week we're going to look at the virgin birth of the Christ of Christmas. We're going to see what the virgin birth, how that applies to all this. But as we look at these things this morning, we see the humanity of Christ. He paid the debt for your sin. But have you received that payment? Only you can receive that payment. I wish that I could receive it for you. I wish I could push it on people. And you probably wish you could push it on somebody too. Or receive it for them. But we can't. It's a personal, individual responsibility. Every human being has to make a choice. Will I receive what Christ did for me as my payment for sin? Or will I reject it? And if they reject it or even neglect it. Some people don't out and out reject it and say, I don't believe any of that stuff. They just put it off. and Put it off. One day, maybe I will one day, just not right now. And then they die. They neglected it. One day too long. It's too late. So this morning I challenge you to look into your heart and ask yourself that important question. Have I received what Christ did for me? Can I look back at a time when I humbled myself before God, admitted my sin, and asked Him to save my soul and give me eternal life, and that He has come into my life now and changed my heart and given me a desire to live for the Lord. If you can't look back at a time like that, I'm not saying you have to have a particular day. That's awesome. Some people do. They can look back and it was the 29th of July, you know, and the next day, I remember at 5 in the afternoon. Yeah, that's awesome. But you may not be able to do that, but you need to be able to look back and say, I know that I'm putting my trust in Christ alone. Nobody else. He is my Savior. And I've received what He did for me. If you've not done that, I encourage you to do it today. If you have, take time to thank Him for all He's done for you. He's done so much for us.